Grab your Bible, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, last week in our series through 2 Thessalonians. Just kind of a reminder where we've been uh, in this book, and then it's going to be a kind of a long intro, I feel like, today. We'll be all right. Uh, reminder where we've been. 2 Thessalonians, Paul talks about three topics. Chapter 1, he talks about persecution. Chapter 2, he talks about the second coming of Jesus, some of the false teaching that they believed in the midst of all that. And then chapter 3, uh, verse 6 specifically, and on, talks about this idea of the unruly. So, so if we remember back to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, Paul would give us this command to admonish the unruly. right? And we would uh, we'd help the weak, uh, and strengthen the faint-hearted, something of that effect, right? but admonish the unruly. And that's kind of really all he said. There wasn't much description of the unruly. There wasn't much help for us 2,000 years later on, on what that meant for the unruly. We were just told to admonish or to come alongside of, to help, to encourage. Uh, and so I remember, maybe you do too, that discussion group following that message that, that we kind of parked, not, not necessarily on purpose, but we kind of parked on how do we handle the unruly. And, and we mentioned that they, they're people that don't work, and we kind of, okay, now we're in Second Thessalonians, and what's interesting to me is we seem to somewhat struggle in discussion group with what do we, how do you handle this, what does that look like? Well, maybe the church in Thessalonica had the same struggle. Because Paul doesn't say, here's what you do with the faint-hearted again. He doesn't say, here's what you do with the weak. He doesn't say, here's what to do with these other situations. But he does park here in chapter 3 on this idea of the unruly. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to kind of jump around a little bit to start uh, in this chapter. But the goal is that we would have this somewhat definition from the text of who are the unruly, right? Like, who are they? And then we'll go back to the beginning of the text, and we'll walk through the text and how we're supposed to handle it. Okay, so, so verse 6, uh, normally I read, let's not read it just yet. Okay, so verse 6, though, he says this, that you keep away from who? From every brother who leads an unruly life. Okay, so here's that same word that we saw back in 1 Thessalonians. Here's the unruly. Uh, some translations will say undisciplined. Okay, so, so what does that mean? What does that look like in the context of Thessalonica 2,000 years ago? Well, Paul's going to give us a little bit more of a hint this time than he did in 1 Thessalonians. Okay, how does he describe those who leads an unruly life? It's the very next phrase. And not according to the tradition which you received from us. Okay, now we mentioned, I think it was just last week, right? We talked about tradition. It's not just a tradition for the sake of tradition. This is tradition that would teach. This is orally passed down. So the tradition that Paul says from us, what does that mean? It means he didn't start it. It doesn't mean that he came up with some new gospel or some new teaching. Like this is the oral tradition that has been passed down to him. Someone taught it to him. He started the church in Thessalonica. Right? And so, so we would say, here's the unruly, here's the undisciplined. How do we describe them? How does Paul describe them? By not living according to the tradition not living according to the teaching of God's Word. Okay, so, so kind of a big statement, kind of a broad statement there, uh, but at least we get a little bit more than we did First Thessalonians. Okay, we can skip down to verse 10. In verse 10, halfway through the verse, uh, again, dealing with this topic of unruly and undisciplined, what do we see in verse 10? It says, if anyone is not willing to work. Okay, so, so here's unruly, here's undisciplined. They're not following the traditions that Paul would set forth, the, what the Word of God has said, and here at some level, they're not willing to work. Okay, notice what he says, though. He says they're not willing. It's not that they're not able. It's not that they're, they're trying. It's just not working. It's not like, hey, it's a bad economy. It's hard to find work. Like, they're saying, no, it's, they're not willing. Here's, here's the job. Here's work to be done. Do you want to help? No. Right? Not willing to work. Verse 11. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life. That's the same Greek word. 
It, it bothers me sometimes when we translate it differently in English from like, pick one, stick with it, is how I feel. Anyway, same Greek word used in verse 6 for unruly. Okay, so, so you're unruly, undisciplined, however you want to word that. Okay, we hear that some of you are living an undisciplined life. Okay, how does Paul describe it now in verse 11? Doing no work at all. Okay, so, so you're, un, you don't, you're not willing to work. There's work to be done. You don't want to do it. Now he says what? You're not working at all. Like zero work. Again, this isn't like, hey, they're struggling. Hey, they're trying to get started a new business. Like whatever context we would think of today. Like, like man, it's just bad economy. Right? Like, no, this is you're not working. You're not trying. You're not, you don't even seem to be struggling. And he gives us one more uh, idea of who these unruly are. End of verse 11. But acting like busybodies. Okay. Busybodies is a word I don't say outside of the Bible, I don't think. Right? Like, I don't think this is a word that I call people. Uh, so, so in our more modern, more whatever, in Bart McNaughton speech, like this is a gossip, this is somebody who's nosy, this is somebody who, who right? Now, the Greek word can mean that. Like, spot on, it can mean that. But it can also have this broader interpretation. And, and just, just want to share this broader interpretation, kind of a bigger, bigger scope. This word for busybody in the Greek can also mean someone who would spend a lot of time on things that are worthless. Okay, so, so we think the Bible sometimes is 2,000 years old, doesn't really apply to us today. And yet Paul's saying that there's people in your culture who don't want to work, who, who actually don't work, and who spend a whole lot of time doing things that aren't, that aren't profitable, that are worthless. Okay, does that not sound like a culture that we live in? Like, like this is going to be kind of stereotypical, not necessarily trying to go down this road, but like, like there's people today that don't want to work, the now hiring signs are out, they don't apply for a job, but they know every TikTok dance. And it's like, really? Like, like that's where we're at? Okay, so I'm not trying to bash any generation or anybody, like, but I'm just trying to say, like, this is today. Like, it's, it happened 2,000 years ago in Thessalonica, apparently it's happening today. This, I don't want to work, uh, I'm going to find something that's going to just waste time. That's where we're at. Okay, so when we say unruly then, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about those who don't follow the word of God. We're talking about, and specifically in their context, those who don't work. Uh, Paul said, 1 Thessalonians 4, what was his command? That you'd live a quiet life, and that quiet had this idea of rest, to stop, to, to, to pause. And then he said, you're going to work hard with your hands. Right? So, so they're not uh, following the teachings of Paul from 1 Thessalonians 4. They're not working. They're not wanting to work. They're, they're not seeming to care about work. And, and then here, the end of verse 11, there are busybodies spending their time on worthless things. Okay, so when we, we're going to walk back through the text now. When we say unruly, undisciplined, this is a description from the text that Paul gives us. But there's a couple other things that I want to cover before we actually start working through the text. Okay? Uh, first, when we look at verse 6, and we have this idea of what? That, that they don't follow this, this teaching, this oral tradition that would be passed down on how to live for God and how to, how to spend your life as a Christian. We would look at that and say, if you don't follow the tradition, if you don't follow the teaching, like that seems to be more of a spiritual problem. Right? Like, like here's the word of God. You say, no, I don't want to do it because you're proud, because you're lazy, whatever your struggle is, and, and say, I'm not going to do it. We would look at that and say, that's a spiritual problem. And yet, if we looked at the end of this section, when you don't work at all, you could call that laziness, but I don't think it's... Anyway, probably laziness. Uh, but at some level, it translates into a physical problem. Right? And, and somewhere in our culture today, we have this idea like, hey, here's a spiritual problem that affects nothing in my physical world, or here's a physical problem that affects nothing in my spiritual world. And, and this isn't the main point of the text, so I don't want to make it the main point here. But I just want us to realize that it seems like here's a spiritual problem that turns into a physical problem. 
Like here's a misunderstanding about the word of God, or maybe not even misunderstanding, just a, a flat out, I don't want to obey it. And because I, we'd say that spiritually, then it turns into this physical outworking of, of what they're doing. And we'll talk more and more about that. Okay, so, so this, this belief that we can kind of be this way, like I can, I can live for God and, and my physical world can be totally different. Like that's not true. It's not true in this text. It's not too, true anywhere in the Bible. Okay, last thing before we dive into our text. Why are they not working? Right, we, we haven't read the text yet. Just heads up, the text isn't going to tell us. Like it's not like, hey, you're not willing to work and here's why you're not willing to work. Like it doesn't tell us. We have, we have no idea from the text. We don't know why. So I'm going to share with you two thoughts. One of them I don't like, and I'll tell you why, and one of them I think fits our text a little bit better. First thought, why is the people in the church not working? First thought is because Jesus is coming back. They believe he's coming back soon. And so, like, this is what a lot of commentators would say. And, and so, therefore, I'm not going to work. Why, why, do I, why would I go do work today when we think Jesus is coming back next week? Okay, a lot of guys say that. My struggle with that one. Didn't chapter 2 we just say that they believed Jesus already came back? Like, wasn't that a big part of, of chapter 2 was they thought they missed the second coming of Jesus? And so I just, maybe half the church thought he was coming back tomorrow and didn't want to work today, and maybe half the church thought he already came back. I don't know. Uh, but for me, I don't necessarily think that's where I would land. Uh, this one's kind of broad, but this is where I think contextually we'll look at some of this. I think this is where, we, where I'm going to land. They didn't want to work. Because the church would be giving. The church would help meet the needs of people in their community. And so why work if, if, if someone's got me? And so what we're going to see here, we're going to read through the text, but what we're going to see is Paul's example, uh, which we'll get to in verse 7 and 8. When he talks about what he's done, I think that seems to fit this idea a lot better. Paul says, here's how you should live your life, and it's a direct contrast to the idea that I'm just going to be lazy and take whatever the church might give me. Okay, so with that all being said, for some sort of intro, let's read the last part here of 2 Thessalonians 3, and then we'll dive into it. So starting verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we did not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of, of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with them so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Okay, verse 6, here we go. Now we command you. Here's the Paul, Paul's command, uh, dealing with these people who are unruly. What's the man, command? He says, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. Okay, that should sound weird. Why? 
Because 1 Thessalonians 5 was what? Admonish the unruly. And now we're in 2 Thessalonians 3, and he says what? He says, keep away from every brother. This idea that you would remove yourself from them. Okay, so, so here's going to be this, this struggle that we're not going to answer maybe till the end, and maybe we don't answer it all today, but, but like, what, how do you admonish and how do you keep away at the same time? Like, how do we follow 1 Thessalonians 5 and 2 Thessalonians 3 when we're talking about the same group of people? And it seems to be a contradiction. Okay, we'll get there. But before we do, verse 6, notice what he says, though. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, that you keep away from who? From every brother who leads an unruly life. He doesn't say from every person who leads an unruly life. Notice, like, he says who? From every brother. So what is he saying? He's saying you, church, you all, all y'all, and the church, you as a church are going to remove yourself from who? From those who would profess Jesus and yet not live like it. Right? So, so if you go down the Ten Commandments, there's that commandment to not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The, the, the verb there is to carry. Don't carry God's name around in vain. What's the picture? Don't say that you're a follower of God and live like you're not. Okay? What, what is Paul saying here? He's saying we're not going to associate with someone who would put on Jesus on the outside with his mouth and say, I'm a follower of his, and yet not live like it. Okay, so this isn't new. Uh, Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 5. We'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, we'd see that in Jesus' words himself in the Gospels. Right, but, but here's the idea. Like, we can hang out with people who are unruly. We can share the Gospel with them. We can bring them into Jesus. But what he's saying as a church is that if someone's going to profess Christ and not follow the traditions, not follow the teaching, not do what has been commanded, then what are we going to do? We would remove ourselves from that. Okay, verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Okay, we came to you, and verse 7, we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Okay, so Paul in verse 7 is saying, here's the example that we left for you. This is an example that we would want you to follow. Throughout the whole Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, there always seems to be an example. And it's either an example to follow or an example not to follow, right? Paul's saying, here was our example. We want you to follow this example. What was the example? Verse 8. Uh, Verse 7, we didn't act in an undisciplined manner among you. More specifically, verse 8, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Okay, I see three things here. And I'm going to make this assumption that if Paul's saying you're living an undisciplined, unruly life that's against the traditions, the teaching of the word of God, and, and here's what you should have done, I'm going to assume that this is what they were doing. Okay, so I'm going to assume the undisciplined people, unruly people, this is what you're doing. So verse 8, Paul says, we didn't eat any bread without paying for it. Okay, bread specifically, because you maybe just think food. Someone provides food. What did Paul do? He paid for it. So we can make this assumption that the people in the church are doing what? They are no longer reimbursing or paying or buying the food. They're just expecting a handout. Right, and Paul said, that we didn't do that. Like, you did not learn that from us. You didn't learn that from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. When we showed up, we paid for it. Okay? Second thing that he would say there in verse 8. But labor, uh, but with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day. Okay, so, so we're going to assume that at some level, that those in the church that are being called unruly, undisciplined, did, like, we already went down this road and talked about it, but they didn't work. Paul says, that wasn't our example. We worked hard. Like, we gave ourselves to hard work. We would, Paul, a lot of people say, is a tent maker. He really just worked with leather. So did he make tents? Sure, but he made leather products is most likely what we would say with that Greek word. 
Okay, so, so he worked, and he worked hard, and he worked with his hands so that he might provide for himself that he could buy the food that he doesn't have to live for free. Okay, last thing there in verse 8. But we're going to assume, we know Paul wasn't this way, we're going to assume the people in the church were this way. So, so we're going to pay for the food, we're going to work hard with our hands, and then lastly he says what? That we would not be a burden to any of you. So what is the assumption then? We're assuming that there's people in the church that have become a burden. You are what? You are capable of working. Like Paul doesn't say, like, hey, the, what you've been through and, and some sort of injury or some sort of struggle or some sort of whatever, like we get it, you can't work. Like he doesn't say that. He says you aren't willing to work. So the idea is that you're capable of working. You have the ability to go work. You, you have the means. You, like you should be working and you're not. Right? And now he says what? That person, you in the church, you have become a burden. Okay, so, so what do we do then with these people? Like, how do we handle this? What, what, what is Paul going to say to the church? All these things. Well, let's keep going. Verse 9, he says, We had the right to do this. We could have got paid for preaching the gospel, all those things. But he said, In order to give you a model, to give you the example, we decided not to do that. Verse 10, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Okay, so, so in this context, right, we, in history class, U.S. history, like one of the guys, founding fathers, said this. And I, anyway, in this context, you're, you're capable of working. You're like of the age that you can go back, you can work. Uh, you, you have the means. Okay, you have the ability to work. And you say, I'm not going to work. What is Paul saying? He's saying he should not eat either. Okay, how is this person getting food? Most likely either from the church as an organization or from church members. So what is the command then for that Paul's saying here? He's telling the church, if this person is not working to provide for himself, then you as a church should what? Should stop feeding him. Okay, now, now we're thinking culturally 2,000 years ago, Thessalonica, there would be this whole level of hospitality that we don't understand. Right? Like, like the hospitable in that there's a stranger that I don't know, I've never seen in my town. I'm going to invite him in our house for the next three days. Like, we don't, we don't do that. Maybe, maybe you do. I don't do that. I don't think, huh, never seen you before. You want to come over? Like, and yet their culture would be like, hey, here's someone who needs something. Uh, we're going to invite you in. And yet even in their hospitality, there was like these unwritten rules. And it was like two to three days was the most you would expect to stay at someone's home. You want to stay any longer than that? Like all these, okay, this is probably months. This, this, this has gone on for a lot longer than this hospitality uh, idea that they would have there in Thessalonica. Like you've just taken advantage. And what is Paul saying? He's saying to the church, you would stop feeding. You would stop giving. They can work. Stop enabling them to not work. Verse 11. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, acting like busybodies. Verse 12. Now such persons we command, such persons, you that are undisciplined, you that are unruly, you that are wasting time on worthless things, being busybodies. Okay, what does he say? He says, uh, these people we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, pretty serious command, Tony. What does he say? He says to work. Like, like you go work. And how are you going to work? You're going to work in a quiet fashion. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says that you're going to live a quiet life and you're going to work hard with your hands. That word quiet means to stop, like to cease. Like, like you're going to work, but you're, the Sabbath in my mind is what would come up. This word quiet in the Greek is, is not the idea of stopping. It's the idea of minding your own business. 
So, so you've been a busybody. You've been putting your nose in other people's business. You've been wasting time. You've been doing all those things. And Paul says you're going to work. And you're going to work in such a way that you look nothing like the busybody that you used to be. Right? You're going to work hard with your hands. You're going to work hard in, in your context. You're going you're gonna to do the work. Okay, now we understand, maybe we don't understand, but, but there's this idea 2,000 years ago, they didn't go to a 9 to 5. Right? Like the idea of work and, and their culture, for, for a lot of them, would have been working in your own backyard, growing your own food. Right? Like Paul worked with leather with his hands to, to sell something to have. There's people that would be on some sort of working with their hands stonemason, working with their hands with wood. Like, like that, it's not a 9 to 5, it's like you go do the work. That's, that's there around you, right? So they're not looking for someone to hire, right? And Paul's like, you're going to go work, and, and there's plenty of work to be done. Most likely, you're going to work, and you're going to be focused on your work. Okay, what else does he say? Verse 12, you're going to work hard. You're going to eat your own bread. Like, I don't, I don't know what this would have been like. I don't know how many people in the church in Thessalonica at this time, I don't know what this would have been like, but I'm assuming that there's a handful of people in the church that, like, they just stand up and read the letter, right? And there's at least a handful, if not more than a handful, that would fit this unruly, undisciplined category. Like, I don't know how weird that would be for someone to stand up in the front and say, hey, here's this new letter from Paul, and you work through persecutions, like, all right, we can go through persecution. And then you work through the second coming, oh, good, you, we haven't missed it. And then you get to the unruly, and you're just like, in my mind, like, crickets, because you're like, well, we all know who the unruly people are. And Paul just calls him out and he says, work hard, go eat your own bread. Like, stop taking the bread that should be given to other people. Okay, so that's his command to those who are unruly. Verse 13, uh, here's his command to those who are, uh, who are disciplined, however you want to word that, not the unruly. Verse 13, here's your command. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Why would Paul feel the need to say verse 13? Like, we're talking about unruly, undisciplined, those who aren't unruly, those who are disciplined. Like, don't be weary of doing good. Why would he throw this part in here? Like, this maybe doesn't seem like it fits too well, but yet if you think about it, how many times have you been taken advantage, advantage of? And your first statement or someone else's statement was, well, that's the last time I ever do that. Right? Like, I'm going to help. I'm going to help somebody. Man, they need, they need someone to coach my kids, whatever team. I'm going to step up and I'm going to help. The season goes horrible. Everyone's mean. The parents are jerks. Like, whatever the story is. And at the end of the season, you're like, man, I'm never going to do that again. Right? The church helps somebody. They take advantage of the church. The church is like, man, we're never going to do that again. And yet, what is Paul saying here? He's saying, no, no, no. Just because someone took advantage, just because someone manipulated the system, just because something like that happened, doesn't mean that, that you're off the hook. It doesn't mean that you, don't, you no longer have to do good. It doesn't mean that there's not widows and orphans and strangers that are still in your community there in Thessalonica that you need to go do good to. Like, God has called us to do good, so let's go do good. If someone takes advantage of your goodness, don't, don't let that wear you out. We're not calling it quits. We're not done because somebody, somebody took advantage of our goodness. You think about Jesus, you think about God the Father, how many times have we taken advantage of his goodness? He's not done. He doesn't call it quits. He doesn't say, well, it's the last time I'm ever being nice to those people. Verse 14, we get a little bit of a, of a turn here. Notice what he says. Uh, I'm going to skip the first couple of words. He says, our instruction in this letter. Okay, so, so this is like verse 14. We're now going to zoom out of chapter 3 a little bit, and we're going to go to all three chapters of this letter. Okay, so if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, okay, word of God, teaching that Paul would have, they do not obey it. 
And this is not like a mistake. This is not like, whoops, I, I tripped up. I know I should have done this and I didn't do that. It's not that I struggled. It's more than in line with what we just went through with the unruly. You have the ability to work. You know you should work. And you say, I'm not working. Okay, so, so if someone doesn't obey like a lifestyle that says, I know what's right, I should be doing what's right, and yet I'm not going to do it. Okay, that's the idea of they're not obeying. So if you're, if you're sitting here and you're struggling, praise God you're struggling. Right, like praise God that like, we're on this side of eternity, we're all struggling. Okay, so don't feel like, man, this morning I provoked my child to wrath. Like I, I disobeyed, this is me. Like no, you're... I mean, maybe you are. Maybe you do it on purpose forever and you don't care, and that would be you. But most likely, it's like, no, I made a mistake this morning. And I'm struggling, and I'm asking for forgiveness, right? So this is someone who be continually doesn't obey and doesn't care about it. Okay, so if you don't obey this instruction in this letter, what do we do, church? What do we do? We take special note of that person. We mark them. Uh, we, we understand what they're doing. And then he says this, and do not associate with them. Okay, Paul uses the same word in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, the list of things that we are not supposed to associate with. Where are we at? Uh, let me find it in my notes. Uh, anyway, the list of things, 1 Corinthians 5, that we're, oh, here it is, that we're not supposed to associate with. Immoral, covetousness, idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler. Paul says we are not to associate with them. But again, in 1 Corinthians 5, he gives this... I, this, this more specific than this that he says you wouldn't associate with any brother, a fellow believer, someone who professes to be Jesus, who would go out and get drunk. You want to be of, like continually, always, right? Idolater, reviler. Okay. Now, for some of us, we read through this list, right? First Corinthians five type of list, and we're like, okay, I get it. Like they profess Jesus and yet they get drunk every weekend, just passed out, right? Like like they profess Jesus and yet they're an idolater and they're constantly worshiping other things. Like I get that. Let's not associate with them. Let's remove ourselves from them. But yet going back to our context. Sometimes it seems a little bit harder, maybe, with the unruly, those who aren't willing to work. Like, again, 1 Thessalonians 5, admonish them. Now we get to verse 6 of this chapter, keep away from them. We're in verse 14. What does he say? He says you're going to make special note of them, and you're not going to associate with them. And so at some level, maybe we feel like this might be a little bit strict. This might be a little bit too harsh, like, like, this doesn't seem like a good idea, like, like, and we're going to struggle with that. I'm not saying I'm going to give you the correct answer so that you won't struggle. That's a struggle. But, but we're going to see a reason why Paul says this, not to associate with them. We're going to see that in just a second. But a couple reasons that he doesn't give is there is some, some communication to the church that says, hey, we're not okay with this. We're not just going to keep enabling somebody to not live out the word of God. We're not just going to keep helping them do what God says you should be doing or shouldn't be doing. Like, we're not just going to enable you. So, so church, like, we want to know that this is wrong. We're not going to do it. Second, I think there's, a, there's an outside perspective that says this is what it looks like to be a Christian. And they would look at the church and say, what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? And they see a bunch of people not working. So there's some sort of kingdom building idea here going on. But Paul would give this reason. He says, you would not associate with him. Why? So that he will be put to shame. For us, that sounds real strict. Maybe that sounds harsh. you got to understand, their culture was much more of an honor-shame type of culture. And what would be the purpose? He doesn't say the purpose of this, but what's the purpose of the shame? The purpose of the shame is that they would repent. 
that they would recognize, like, man, this is a serious sin. This is a big deal that I'm doing. I should repent. I should come back to Jesus. I should become a better follower of him. Like, whatever that statement would look like, but you're going to be put them to shame so that they would repent and come back to, to a proper walking with God. What do we see next? Verse 15. This, we've already said this. Here it is again. Yet do not regard him, this one that you are not associating with, this one back in verse 6 that you're going to keep away from. Like, do not regard him as an enemy. Okay, this, this I think is, I don't think this is too hard. Right? We would disassociate, we'd, we'd step back from how, whatever that would look like. Okay? Uh, you're not going to treat him like an enemy, which means what? You're not going to go burn down his house. You're not going to gossip about him. You're not going to destroy his reputation. Like, like he's not an enemy. So, so at some level, you need to step away from, but at the next level, you're not going to try and destroy this man's life. Right? Like he's not an enemy, but yet what the hard part is here in verse 15 is, okay, we can maybe grasp not treating him like an enemy, but how do, you, how do you keep away, how do you not associate with, and then end of verse 15, how do you admonish him as a brother? And, and again, I don't know if I'm going to answer this for you, but a couple of thoughts here. I think one, admonishing and, and this idea of not associating with go hand in hand. Right? Like, like at some level, I think the keeping away, the stepping back, the not associating, the allowing them to be put to shame is in some way an admonishment to them. Second, I don't think, uh, let's word it this way, I think that we see 1 Thessalonians 5 first for a reason. Right? You're unruly, you're undisciplined. 1 Thessalonians 5 says what? It says to admonish. Now we get months, maybe a year or two later, probably not that long, but maybe, and we're still having this issue with the unruly, and then Paul says what? You keep away. So, so first, first instruction to the whole church back in 1 Thessalonians was to admonish, and admonish, 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 and it got to the point where they weren't, they weren't turning, they weren't repenting, they weren't changing, nothing else was doing. They were becoming a burden, they were not working, not willing, all these things that we just walked through. So then Paul would just write this letter and say, all right, now you're going to keep away. Now you would distance yourself. So I don't ever want us to think 2 Thessalonians in its own little context outside of 1 Thessalonians where we read in verse 6, we just keep away from those who are unruly. So somebody's not keeping the tradition of God. It's not like, hey, i got to keep away from them. That's it. We're done. Like, sever that tie. Like, no, we would admonish first. We would encourage first. We come alongside of first. And, and if, if, if they don't repent and they don't turn and they don't follow Jesus and they don't do these things, then I think we go to verse 6. And I think we go to verse 15. Uh, verse 14. We would, we would step back, step away. Okay, verse 16, Paul's going to give this prayer, 16 and 17 as we close. I, I, this prayer, he gives a prayer at the end of each chapter, and, and that prayer seems to be connected to what he just said, right? Here, uh, what he just said, verse 14, is this letter. And so I feel like verse 16 is not just this chapter, but it's going to be a prayer for the whole book. So verse 16, now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. Okay. Let's just take every circumstance in the context of this book and this letter. May the, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace in what? In the midst of your persecution. Like, I, I can only imagine how hard it would be to have peace when you say, I'm following God, I'm being persecuted for it. Okay, we're going to have peace where? In the midst of false teaching and false doctrine that's infiltrated the church. Like, like, we want God's peace as we, as we deal with that now. What do we want? We want God's peace. Paul wants God's peace for, for this church as you would deal with these unruly people. 
to be able to say, hey, uh, we've admonished and we've admonished and we've admonished and now we're going to step away. Like peace. <laughs> you need God's peace. And then he says this, the Lord be with you all. Like, who's with you? Verse 16, the beginning, the Lord of peace himself. The Lord be with you all. If you go through the Old Testament, we don't have time to go through all of them today, but you go through the Old Testament, what does God say to the people who don't want to do something for God? Like, God asked Moses, lead my people out of Egypt. Moses is like, I don't want to do it. And what does God say? He says, I will be with you. I'll be with your mouth. I'll be with you. I'll be with your brother. Right? Joshua takes over the people of Israel. What does he say to Joshua? God will be with you. Matthew 28, he says to disciples who just a couple verses earlier said that they doubted. And he says, you're going to go and you're going to preach the gospel. You're going to make disciples and I will be with you. Right? What is Paul saying to the church here in Thessalonica? Like, you can do this. You got this. Not because of your power, not because of your strength, not because of your abilities, not because of your seminary degree. But you can do this. Why? Because God is with you. So you can have peace because the Lord of peace is with you. Verse 17, Paul gives us, you know, final greeting, my own word, distinguishing mark, my own letter. And then at verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Okay, so, so to sum up Thessalonians, sum up this prayer, sum up this idea, here's a quote from a guy named Mark Howe. He would say this, because God's peace is impossible without God's presence, Paul adds these words to his prayer, the Lord be with you all. What comfort the Thessalonians could take in knowing that God was not going to abandon them. He was going to abandon them in, in persecution. He was going to abandon them in the second coming. He was going to abandon them with the unruly that's going on there. Right? But then this last phrase. With God's presence, Jesus' grace, the Spirit's enablement, and reliable words from Paul's own pen, these young believers had every resource necessary to pursue their mission until the coming of Christ. Right? Like, like, what more did they need? They have the presence of God, the grace of Jesus, the Spirit's power, and the Word of God. And so what we would do is we can look 2,000 years later. I don't know if you've ever had this. I didn't have it with Ephesians. Sorry to the church in Ephesus. I didn't have it with Philippians or Colossians, uh, but I've had it here. I feel like I'm cheering on the church in Thessalonica. Like they're two, this letter is 2,000 years old, and at some level, I'm like, come on, church, you got it. Like, you can do it. Like, it's somehow it's written today, and I'm just like, come on, you got it. Okay. But we would look at this letter 2,000 years ago, and we would say, man, you got God's presence, you got Jesus' grace, you got the Spirit's enablement, you, you have the Word of God. Like, you got it. You, you have everything you need. Hindsight being 2020, church, you, can, you cannot just survive. You can thrive. You can, like, overturn your culture. Like, look at all these amazing things you can do with what God has given you. And yet, fast forward to 2023, and all of a sudden, we're like, yeah. yeah. Like, all of a sudden, we're, like, the church in America uh, gets in this, like, mindset of, like, we just need to survive. We just need, like, no, no, no. God's given us more than just to survive. Like, we can go out and build his kingdom. Jesus says that the gates of hell are not going to come against his kingdom, and yet we live in fear. We think, Thessalonica, you don't have to live in fear. You've got God's presence. You've got Jesus' grace. You've got Spirit's power. You have the word of God. Why would you live in fear and yet fast forward to our culture, which isn't persecution? No one's worried, hopefully, no one's worried about meeting in this room this morning. And yet, for some reason, it's like, yeah, I don't know if we have what it takes to overcome our culture today. I don't know if we have what it takes to build God's kingdom in this world and this culture today. And I would just encourage you that we do. Right? Do we have less of God's presence? No. 
Do we have less of Jesus' grace today in the church of Thessalonica? I would say no. Do we have less of the Spirit's power? No. Do we have less of the Word of God? No, we actually have more of the Word of God. And so may we uh, go forth and build his kingdom. May we go forth and do what he's commanded us to do. So in this letter, uh, and may we go forth in the midst of persecution, which we're not in, but maybe potentially will be soon. May we go forth in the midst of, of false teaching and how to navigate that and coming back to the Word of God and those things. May we go forth with dealing with people who would be outside of, of the tradition, of the teaching of God, yet profess Jesus. And may we go to them and admonish them and encourage them to come back. We've said this before, I'll say it again. The Word of God generally is not hard to understand. Right? Like every once in a while you hear somebody be like, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can believe the Bible, or I don't, I don't know if I can obey the Bible. Like there's so many weird things in Revelation. Or like right now, I'm in Zechariah. I don't know if you've been in Zechariah lately, but like we won't go down that road. Uh, but like there, I told Nick the other day in Smoker, like I, I'm reading things. Like I understand English. I have no idea what this is saying. And yet, majority of the Bible isn't that. The majority of the Bible is, hey, we're going to have peace from God because he's with you. We're going to work hard with our hands, and we're not going to waste time on things that don't matter. So it's not that the Bible is hard to understand. What the hard part is is that we would actually do it. Right? That becomes the struggle. The struggle isn't, hey, I, don't, I just don't understand what Paul's saying here. No, the struggle is I do understand. I'm just struggling to do it. And so my encouragement for us would that we would take what Mark would say here in this quote, We'd recognize that we have God's presence, Jesus' grace, Spirit's enablement, and, and the Word of God. And with those things, we can go build God's kingdom together. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this text. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for this letter that Paul wrote. God, we live in a culture today, you know. Thessalonica, those in Thessalonica, Thessalonica lived in a culture in their day where living for God was not, wasn't the norm. It wasn't what was accepted. And at some level, um, not following God's word, not, not following the way of Jesus, uh, and, and being part of church seemed to be acceptable. And so we've seen that in this letter. We can see that in other passages in the New Testament, where, where, where this idea that we would profess Jesus and, and not live like him. And so it might be easy for us this morning to think of somebody, to think of a church, to think of, of some organization that professes Jesus but doesn't live like it. But God, instead of thinking of that, may you help us to focus in our own heart this morning. The context was not willing to work. God, for some of us, it's something different. That, that there is a, a sin, a struggle, that, that we just don't want to give up. That we just... We would, we would rather have. And so, God, I pray that you would point out to us uh, the, the teachings, the traditions, the word of God that has clearly been spoken, that we clearly understand, and yet we don't want to obey. Point that out to us individually. Point that out to us corporately as a church so that we might be better kingdom builders for you, so that we might be better followers of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would help us to recognize your presence in our life. I pray that you would help us to recognize the grace of Jesus that he gives us to go forth and make disciples. I pray that you'd help us to remember the Spirit's power and his enablement, that we are not doing this in our own strength. And I pray that you'd help us to value the word of God in our life. And with those things, may we go forth and build your kingdom.
We pray this in your son's name. Amen.